Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 89 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and a general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me, of course, is... This is Michelle Tarvox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Our mission is to bring you discussions of some of the latest dermatology research every couple weeks so that you can trust us to discuss it instead of having to spend quite so much time flipping through journal articles, scrolling through emails, etc. Also helping us out is the pimping bell. I've received... Some feedback that we should introduce the pimping bell at the beginning of the episodes because uh, people who haven't been listening for a long time don't know what it means. So the pimping bell lives on Michelle's desk and makes that noise. And when you hear the bell, we're trying to highlight especially pimpable or question-worthy content. So if you work at an academic program, those might be good questions to ask your residents. If you are a resident, someone might ask you such things. And Michelle, you and I recently came back from beautiful Bastrop, Texas, where we had a great time. We were both speakers at the Texas Derm Society meeting. Woo! It was a wonderful weekend of learning, and it was nice to see people in person. I thought it was an excellent meeting. Yes, so a big thank you to Texas Derm Society for inviting us to come out there. It was uh, fun and educational. And like we sometimes do after these meetings, I thought we'd just... um, mention some of the highlights, some of the little pearls that I got out of it. So, and hopefully that you did too, Michelle. I'll go <laughs> I first did. though. <laughs> so there were some resident presentations. They talked about a few things. As a pediatric dermatologist, I of course love genodermatoses. So they talked about PIK3CA overgrowth syndromes. Shall I with the bell just syndromes. to start off? All right. Probably the bell needs to be like just having a little fit here during this part, but people (laughs) with these syndromes usually have epidermal nevi, they have seborrheic keratoses, benign lichenoid keratoses, they have vascular malformations. By the way, there's a particular version of this CLAPO syndrome, C-L-A-P-O. The telltale sign is a capillary malformation of the lower lip. So if you see that, you can look real smart. And then of course they have this asymmetric overgrowth that's pretty characteristic. And these used to have a lot of different names, like Clapo syndrome and various others. I think Sappho syndrome and Proteus syndrome. syndrome. Clove sounds right too. But as we've realized, they all kind of share this genetic mutation. They're kind of being lumped into pick 3 ca overgrowth syndromes now. And mTOR is a problem here too, because that's a molecule that's downstream of this pick 3 ca molecule. And so Mm -hmm. we have drugs that can target mTOR and others. So some treatment options include sirolimus and the recently approved Alpelisib, Alpelisib. April 2022. Has a very interesting brand name, Vijoice. So I don't know if you're supposed to say Vijoice or Vijoice. It's V-I-J-O-I-C-E. Um, so it's a potential therapeutic option for these patients. Yes, I'm told it's expensive. Didn't you tell me it was like $300,000 a year? It's pretty damned expensive. Let me get an accurate number. Well, it's pricey, but of course, um, it's you're treating kind of an orphan and neglected condition. So if you need it, it's out there. There was also some discussion about human herpes virus 6, HHV6. Just as a reminder, HHV6 causes roseola in phantom. That's the 
fever, fever, fever rash one, roseola. And it's also positive in some dress or DIHS patients. We've talked about this before a little bit. It seems to be positive in about two thirds of these patients and appears about three weeks after symptom onset. But is it causative or it just sort of also reactivates at the same time? Jury's still out, but apparently there are some case reports that gancyclovir or foscarnet could be helpful. And the apelosib is 32000 a month. Is the no, even more than $300,000 a year. Yeah, it's pretty Dang. crazy. There was a great Mohs surgeon there, Dr. Chad Housewright, who gave us some really cool surgical pearls. So I'm just going to roll through some of these here. Speaking of rolling through them, how about dental rolls? So I don't usually do surgery on really old people because I'm a pediatric dermatologist. I tend to see kids and I see a lot of young adults. But so I don't usually have to deal with this issue of like some people, if they've been really baked in the sun and their forearms are like the skin is like tissue paper thin and it just this sutures just sort of tear through them so if you're dealing with something like that you can just put a dental roll on their skin and just suture right through the dental roll and it can keep the skin from tearing he also recommends that you can use the circular finger hole of a surgical instrument like a scissors you know where you would stick your fingers through a scissors to use the scissors you can turn the scissors around and use that hole and press it so you're applying circumferential pressure around a surgical site if it's bleeding and you're trying to figure out where the bleeding is coming from, especially on the scalp was his example. And then, so you press it down there and you kind of stop the bleeding and then you can kind of slowly rock it around and try to see where the bleeding is coming from. Undermining. So there's different ways to do it. You can do sharp undermining with a scalpel or a scissors, or you can do blunt undermining by doing like a sort of the push and spread technique. He likes the sharp undermining approach. I, I like it too. Not only is it faster, but apparently it reduces something called tissue mounding, which can create kind of an irregular looking scar. So if you're slicing with a scalpel, you're creating a single smooth plane rather than this blunt dissection, which kind of creates hills and valleys, if you will. For ergonomics, he recommends that you get your surgical field completely flat. So don't be afraid to use those chairs more than you might already be using them. And he says the optimal working angle is your back straight and you're working right at elbow level which is kind of far away. And because of that, surgical loops can also help. Do you have surgical loops, Michelle? I do, Luke. I have. Uh, I had to kind of teach myself to use them because I didn't use them in training. So for those people who are in training, if you can afford to get a pair of loops, I would try because if you use them integrated into your surgical practice as you're learning, it's going to be a lot more fluid in your practice moving forward. And it is a very important thing to think about your positioning and your kind of orth your orthopedic wellness, if you, if you want to put it that way, for a lifelong career. You know, I mean, we can take ourselves out of our careers earlier prematurely if we fail to address ergonomics and take care of our bodies. Loops, by the way, are those little magnifying lenses that are stuck on glasses or goggles that you see surgeons wearing and also help make you look super cool. I mean, I don't have a pair. <laughs> right. That is the important part. Maybe I don't have a pair because I don't need anything else to look super cool. I'm cool enough as it is. <laughs> cool hand, Luke. I just don't do all that much surgery. I do a couple cases a week, but I still kind of want to try it. But I can't really borrow somebody else's because they're like specific to your pupillary distance and stuff. So I'd have to like buy a pair and I think they're pretty expensive. So I'm still on the fence about it. How much just... are they, Michelle? You know, they range in price depending on which manufacturer you purchase from. They're typically somewhere between 500 to to $1,000. They're not cheap. 
dermabrasion. If you've got a scar and you want to dermabrade it, Dr. Housewright says you can do it at any time, but the dogma is four to six weeks after a procedure. And if you want, you can use sandpaper. So he talks about sheetrock sandpaper. He says it should be 180 grit, whatever that is. 3M is a reasonable company. And he says you should tell the patient and probably know for yourself that you're not really trying to sand down the scar like you're not like wood. You're not treating it like wood. You're trying to activate the fibroblasts. You probably do this a lot more than I do. We do you a try lot to of just this. sort of get pinpoint bleeding. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And we do. We use autoclaved sandpaper. Um, you also can use the sort of dermabrasion tools. It's like a rotary kind of wire bristle thing. But the way Dr. Stetson likes to describe this, who is the chair of my department, because it was used a lot when he was in training, is that you kind of need to drape the room because if you're doing it properly, you know, blood can get kind of all over the place. So it's a lot more controllable with the sandpaper. um, And a lot of different experiences have indicated it's pretty similar. That's what Dr. Housewright said as well. Also, there's little pads that sometimes you can use to like clean the eschar off the hyphricator tips that exist. And those are also mm-hmm. can be a decent sandpaper alternative. Mm-hmm. You can get red marks from scarring and stuff. He recommends the specific product, Clinique Redness Solutions, a makeup product that can help disguise them. He also likes vibration devices, but he found that some of the commercial medical devices just fell apart on him or he dropped them and broke them. And so he was like, wait a second. There I am at Target. There's a vibrating toothbrush. Maybe that'll work. So I thought this vibrating toothbrush idea was great in terms of vibration devices. Plus they make vibrating toothbrushes for kids. So I'm planning to go get like a frozen branded toothbrush or something because everybody likes frozen. And that'll also make them feel a little bit better about what's going on. Uh, And then the last surgical pearl I'll mention is if you've got like a big procedure and you think patients are going to be in some significant pain and might even need to use some tramadol or opioids, he says you can inject bupivacaine after the procedure because it lasts for four to eight hours. It's probably bell worthy. Yes. And there's a study study that if you do that, you do in fact reduce pain in opioid use. And finally, Michelle, you gave some talks. You taught me something. I'll just mention Aww. one thing. If you get achy with isotretinoin, you can consider the supplement L-carnitine. You start at 1,000 or 2,000 milligrams QHS, but you can go up to 1,000 TID. Awesome sauce. Uh, and I think that the meeting in general just had so many great tips. Your lecture was wonderful. You went over a lot of the high points of things that we've discussed in Dermosphere, including one of the pearls with Accutane, where the goal is to treat two months past clearance to help ensure less recurrence of the acne. And then oh, I wanted to say for the um, singing, you can actually get a sonic toothbrush that plays songs. So they have musical kids sonic electric toothbrushes if you really want to, you know, amp up the bells and whistles for trying to soothe patients during process- procedures that require anesthesia. Uh, They also talked about um, sirolimus-induced oral mucositis um, that can happen when patients are being treated for systemic sirolimus, like lymphatic malformations and things. Most care is supportive. You do chlorhexidine or sodium bicarb mouthwash, and you can do a dose adjustment based on the level of mucositis. Infection is a common side effect of sirolimus treatment for lymphatic malformations, so oral hygiene is very important. Uh, The oral hygiene is also important in hospitalized patients. That's something else that got brought up because their risk for pneumonia increases if they're not not doing proper 
um, oral hygiene. And then one of my favorite presentations by one of the people in training was discussing Vibrio cholera and its relationship with phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitors. So the Vibrio cholera has actually a sort of similar um, ability to interfere with phosphodiesterase 4. So basically, when you need to tell the side effects of the early side effects of um, Otesla to patients, you can say it's basically like mild cholera, <laughs> but it's the um, sort of CAMP pathway and how that sort of causes the fluid management to change. Um, PDE4 is actually, so phosphodiesterase 4 is present in keratinocytes, fibroblasts, and melanocytes. And its job, of course, is to, grade, to degrade CAMP. So its job is to decrease intracellular CAMP. It turns that off. So your phosphodiesterase 4 inhibition causes decrease inflammation with keratinocytes, fibroblasts, and melanocytes, but it can cause side effects of diarrhea and nausea and things like that. Um, the inflammatory diseases that these medications have been used for range from psoriasis to sarcoid to discoid lupus, scleroderma, and atopic dermatitis. And just as a reminder of Vibrio cholerate, gram-negative rod, we get it from con contaminated food in hours to days after incubation. Patients get watery diarrhea because of toxin co-regulated pilus, and cholera, the cholera toxin also binds to that G-stimulatory protein, so it permanently activates the um, transport pumps that increase cyclic AMP in the cells. So it's sort of pr providing sort of a similar effect to the phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitors. This was from some of the student you know, presentations I thought that they did very nicely. They talked about how to help patients tolerate the phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitors, including um, conservative measures, take things with meals, and decrease liquid intake, reduce caffeine and dairy, because caffeine can also be stimulatory along that pathway. There was a nice case of perifollicular, mac perifollicular macular amyloidosis, and um, this was a condition that they found was able to be treated in one case with a Janus kinase inhibitor. They went over the uses of C. buckthorn. Um, C. buckthorn is sort of a natural product. It has some effect on acne. Sebum reduction is part of its uh, mechanism of action. There's also some benefits potentially for wound healing. And it's yeah, is an anti-inflammatory, but it still needs further review. Right. There's just not a lot of studies on it. So I admit I was kind of unconvinced with that one. And then, um, Luke, also in your discussion, you brought out the information about prednisone and risk in children. Um, since you are the expert on that, I'll let you discuss if you would like. Well, we discussed this some episodes ago that even very short courses of systemic steroids can increase the risk of sepsis, GI bleeding, um, and pneumonia in kids. This was a big data study out of Taiwan. Um, you can check that one out. I'll, I'll look it up which episode it was in just a sec here, but it's important to remember that we shouldn't be blasé about our medicines. Awesome sauce. I can get the name for that way if you want to start with our article review. I do. So thanks again to the Techthesterm folks for having us out there. We're going to move on. I want to talk about high-flow vascular stains. So this is uh, one of those CertLink articles. So again, if you use CertLink for your CME stuff, then or for your, I guess it's accreditation, this is one of those articles that somebody out there thought was a good idea, and I agreed. So the title is Characterization of Vascular Stains Associated with High Flow. Authors include Eloise Galligat and Maria Garzon. This is from a bunch of different institutes around the world, and this is out of the JAD. So a port wine stain, 
I see a lot of port wine stains. There's a push, by the way, among some people to call them port wine birthmarks these days because stain kind of has a negative connotation. But they're fairly common, about 0.5% of the population. My wife actually has one on her ear. Aww. A port wine stain isn't always just a port wine stain. It could be could look like a port wine stain, but could actually be something else that these authors call a high-flow vascular stain, like an arteriovenous malformation, or AVM, which you would treat differently. So I remember learning this in fellowship. I had uh, my senior mentor, Alfie Kroll. He's awesome. He did a laser case, or he had a patient with a port wine stain, performed a laser procedure on them, and then when the patient came back, they weren't very much better. And he was like, hmm, is this actually an AVM that fooled me? Fool me once, shame on you, but I will not be fooled again. And was <laughs> looking at it closely. I've forget the outcome of that particular case. So that's unsatisfying. But anyway, this multi-center study reviewed 70 cases of high flow vascular stains to tell us when to be suspicious. And in their 70 cases, they found that significant features included that they changed over time. And that was probably the most important. We know the port wine stains are usually stable, at least for the first decade or so. They sometimes can change at puberty, but otherwise they kind of just sit there, which is one way you can differentiate them from infantile hemangiomas, among others. But these high flow vascular stains would become more brown, for example, become more well demarcated. Their periphery could have a little bit of a pale rim and that could increase in paleness over time. And they could also develop increasing venous prominence. So if you started seeing more blue veins show up around them or within them, that was suspicious. They also tended to have variation in their color saturation. They tended to have archipelago-like borders. An archipelago is a line of islands, like the Hawaiian Islands is an archipelago. They tended to be warmth. They had warmth. They tended to be warm. They tended to be associated sometimes with soft tissue overgrowth, have an underwhelming response to pulse dye laser, just like with Dr. Kroll's patient that I mentioned. And they were often on the head and neck, especially for some reason, the cheek and ear. Cheek it Main out. Down episode 55 was for the prednisone in children, by the way. Thanks. And I think in episode nine, we also discussed a similar study in adults. In adults. Exactly. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. So they're not safe. I mean... Safe is relative, I suppose, but you should know that even short courses of systemic steroids can have risks in both kids and adults. So the main downside with this high-flow vascular stain study, in my opinion, is that they didn't include any data on true port wine stains to kind of compare and contrast and show which of these features is really significant or the sensitivity and specificity of them, if you will, because you can certainly have soft tissue overgrowth with just normal old port wine stains. You can have archipelago-like borders with normal, boring old port wine stains. You can certainly have normal, boring old port wine stains on the head and neck and cheek and ear. But still, those are the sorts of things that should make you suspicious, especially this change over time thing, because normal port wine stains don't do that. I think those of us practicing dermatology, especially pediatric dermatology, kind of have a general idea of what a normal port wine stain kind of looks like and acts like. Mm -hmm. And... These are the things that should get your antenna up. And if your antenna is up, you should get an ultrasound or an MRI. Many of the patients in their study ended up having CMAVM syndrome, which stands for capillary malformation, arteriovenous malformation. And we know the genes that are associated with CMAVM syndrome. There's two of them. There's RASA1, R-A-S-A-1, and there's EPHB4. 
So you could also consider genetic testing for these patients, especially if they have multiple lesions. If they have lesions that show up over time, that's fairly characteristic of CMAVM. Babies born with just like one port wine stain, but then like two more develop and they see you when they're eight months old and they parents say, well, these weren't there at birth, but they showed up over the past few months. That's pretty suspicious, especially with these pale rims. Um, and then if they have a positive family history of especially AVMs, like in the brain, for example, you want to be suspicious. The CMAVM syndrome can involve AVMs in the CNS and they should get neuroimaging. Michelle, you'll be happy to know that somebody out there has reported the dermoscopic findings Yay! <laughs> of the high flow vascular stains associated with CMAVM syndrome. So if you're looking at them on dermoscopy, you'll see a biphasic pattern of branched linear vessels overlying a brown reticulary pigment network that disappears with compression, which they say kind of looks like the cafe au lait macules that you might see in neurofibromatosis type 1, which is also associated with RASA1 mutations. Kind of interesting. So these high-flow vascular stains, are all of them early-stage AVMs? Apparently, no one has decided. They say it's an area of controversy, both in terms of the CMAVM-associated stains and the high-flow vascular stains that are not associated with CMAVM. But still, you should pay attention and at least know. But what do you do about it? Well, they say they don't really tell us what to do about it, but they tell us what their institute did about these 70 stains that they saw. Watchful waiting was the biggest approach in 56% of them. 20% were treated with pulse dye laser and 11% were treated with excision or embolization. Probably these had to be individually managed because depending on where they are in the body, how big they are, other features that you might see on imaging, some of them would benefit more from embolization than others. Some people do worry that trauma to these things via biopsy or, or laser, for example, can perhaps incite progression, though more recent research shows that some high flow vascular stains can get a decent response to the pulse dye laser. And finally, just some general info about some of this stuff. So vascular stains with sharply defined geographic borders are often associated with these PIK3CA mutations, like we talked about earlier. And then the blotchy faint stains are more likely to be GNA11. And then most typical port wine stains are now known to be caused by mutations in GNAQ, GNAC, or GNA11, or occasionally this PIK3CA thing. And they say, moreover, a spectrum of somatic mutations are found in patients with overgrowth syndromes, and many of the same mutations are associated with vascular stains, and those include the ones we've already mentioned, PIK3CA, GNAC, GNA11, as well as MAP2K and KRAS. <laughs> All of those tend to be over tend to be involved with um, syndromes that create hamartomas and overgrowths. Um, so, sort of the conflagration of them and things that are proliferative makes sense. So, this is helpful for me, you know, pediatric dermatologist. First of all, I should just know this stuff, and second, I remember learning in fellowship that sometimes port wine stains can actually sneakily be AVMs or something similar. And I think this is a helpful reminder and a reminder of what to look out for. Awesome. Awesome. So speaking of flow, Luke, you know what has flow? Wrappers and blood vessels. So, so wrappers have flow and blood vessels have flow. So I'm going to have a little character debut today named Slim Scopey. Slim Scopey is a rapper who happens to be a dermatopathologist also. 
and he wants to talk about atypical vascular lesions. Okay, so he goes, let's talk about these AVLs. They're small, so they're hard to see, and they have a little controversy, but it's bad if they've got MYC. So like... (laughs) All right, Slim Scopey. So what Sklimscopy is talking about is this entity called the atypical vascular lesion. Now, these were first described in 1994 by Feinberg and Rosen, and they published their seminal article on this type of vascular lesion that tends to occur after irradiation of the breast in the treatment of breast cancer. The MYC part is about MYC amplification. So MYC amplification tends to occur in post-irradiation angiosarcomas. Now, the debate rages on as to whether or not these are all precursor lesions, whether some of them are precursors and most of them are benign, or whether there's a full spectrum of behavior here. Looking over the history of dermatology writ large, I feel like nature keeps teaching us this lesson over and over again where it says, you lovely humans love to put things in categories, one, two, three. But the problem is nature doesn't speak in categories. Nature speaks in spectrums. And so I think that that's part of what we're looking at here. These AVLs or vascular proliferations, they can um, occur in small papules or occasionally patches. They're usually discrete. And it's important to telegraph the clinical to your pathologist, because that clinical presentation is going to be very important in the evaluation of these lesions. And these are the, things that show up after radiation therapy? Mm-hmm. Or are we talking any atypical vascular lesion, whether or not there was radiation? These specific ones we're talking about are confined to post-irradiation vascular lesions that occur on the breast that has been treated with radiation. That's very so specific. It is very specific. So they're one or more small macules to violaceous nodules or papules. They are not terribly specific um, in their presentation. The type, technique, dosage of prior radiation hasn't been specifically analyzed, but they are observed typically within the radiation field. There is a latency period that ranges from one to 20 years after the radiation experience, but most of the time it's within three to six years after the patient had a radiation. The effects of radiation therapy are divided into different categories. Again, humans love to put things in categories. We like to put things in little boxes and cubbies because it makes sense to our brains. There are acute or early changes that happen within days to weeks. The acute changes tend to be the necrosis of the rapidly dividing keratinocytes because the faster a cell divides, the less it likes radiation. So the keratinocytes take a hit with that. Dilatation of capillaries and increased vascular permeability leading to erythema. And then you get decreased activity of hair follicles and sweat glands, so you have xerosis. Three to four weeks after that, you can have some warmth, tenderness, and edema in addition to the erythema. You might get thrombosis of vessels, desquamation, exudation, hyperpigmentation, and ulceration. All of these are in the spectrum of the early findings of radiation. Late findings can include hyalinization of dermal collagen, swelling of endothelial cells, telangiectatic dilatation of dermal vessels, and proliferation and hyalinization of deeper vessels. These changes usually stop within three years after radiation therapy. So a new lesion that's vascular after that three-year cutoff point needs to be viewed with a bit of side eye. So if you see something strange on a breast, (laughs) if you see something strange on a radiated breast, and it's three years more, AVL time. Anyway, so the case report that they present to discuss this is a 63-year-old woman with breast cancer who had estrogen-receptor-positive DCIS, She was treated with conservative surgery as well as radiation therapy with 50 gray, which is a relatively standard protocol for breast irradiation, usually ranges from 40 to 50 gray in fractions. She had 32 treatments. She was also on anostrozole, and her physical presentation showed a six millimeter violaceous macule. 
They did a punch biopsy, and that showed a diffuse dermal proliferation of well-formed capillary structures with mild endothelial atypia. The cells were positive for CD34 and negative for D240. CD34 is a vascular marker. D240, also known as podoplanin, is a lymphatic marker. The AVLs are divided into two characteristics. The, sorry, two categories. The most common category is the lymphatic type. So that's AVL-LT, the lymphatic type. That's the most common, and it has apparently less risk to turn into angiosarcoma. The, least, the less common type is the vascular type, the vascular type CD34, CD34 positive and D240 negative. That vascular type may have a slightly higher risk of going into angiosarc, and it's less common. So usually patients are treated with um, conservative re-excision for these lesions. The treatment recommendations kind of vary. The thing you want to avoid is missing a sampling of a larger lesion that might have our angiosarcoma changes somewhere in it. So you want to be sure that you're looking at all of the lesion to make this diagnosis. It needs to be circumscribed based off of its definition. And so if you don't have enough tissue to determine that, you have to ask for re-excision. So this term, this atypical vascular lesion, it was originally described in four women with cutaneous vascular proliferations after lumpectomy. It was originally thought to be kind of a benign change. It's been named multiple things over the course of its evolution, including atypical hemangiomas, acquired progressive lymphangioma, and benign lymphangiomatous papules. It's also been called benign lymphangioendothelioma. That's an extremely confusing name because usually when there's an endothelioma on something, it means it's kind of intermediate and we don't 100% know how it's going to behave. This was further refined. Sorry. I think I've also seen them called atypical post-radiation vascular proliferations. That is another one of their many, many names. Larger case series continued to refine this diagnosis. They found a small minority of them developed into angiosarcomas with malignant transformation. The natural course of this lesion has been monitored over time, the challenge with that, of course, is that you have to identify the lesion and then leave it in place to allow it to have the time to transform if it's going to. And so, you know, the kinds of studies to do those things are complex because of the ethics involved. And usually you have to utilize opportunities presented by patient decision to determine the natural progression of these things. So if the patient says, okay, I've got this atypical vascular lesion, I don't want any more surgery on my breast, let's just see what it does. And they can follow forward because of the patient's decision, but not the investigators. They tend to be um, characterized by relatively decent circumscription. There is not significant to mild atypia, sometimes slightly more hyperchromasia of the vascular endothelial cells, but there's no multilayering. Multilayering is something that you see in angiosarcoma. That's where you have endothelial cells piled on top of each other. These atypical vascular lesions tend to have actually stromal projections into the lumen of the vessels, which is not something you tend to see in angiosarcomas. And they don't tend to infiltrate deeply into the subcutis. So the biopsy has to show the subcutis for you to know that. So if you think you might be biopsying one of these things, it's very important to include the subcutis for analysis so that your dermatopathologist can carefully and appropriately evaluate the lesion for circumscription and ensure that it doesn't have the dissecting architecture that you might expect for an angiosarcoma. Post-irradiation angiosarcomas are characterized by MYC amplification, FLT4. Gene amplification has also been seen in post-irradiation atypical vascular lesions. So we want to look for that infiltration into the subcutis, multi-layering of the endothelial cells, prominent nucleoli, and hemorrhage would typically characterize an angiosarcoma. So again, this is on a spectrum. 
These are challenging enigmatic entities. The general recommendation is if feasible to completely but conservatively re-excise these lesions so that you can ensure that you've assessed the entire neoplasm and that there's not occult angiosarcoma hiding somewhere still in the patient. These lesions can also either recur or new lesions proliferate. People don't really 100% know if the new lesions are a recurrence of the original or just a second hit where you've had a similar circumstance arise in the same tissue. And then some people have looked at this with a little bit of skepticism. Um, there are some vascular neoplasms that arise in other conditions that can cause dermal sclerosis that can have somewhat similar and overlapping features. So there can be, for example, sclerodermoid to GVHD can have eruptive lymphangiomas that have some histologic overlap with these atypical vascular <laughs> lesions, and neither one of them has different molecular genetics to distinguish them at this point. So I think that it's an important thing to be aware of, especially for clinicians to understand how to properly biopsy and manage them something that can be a consequence of radiation therapy for breast cancer and something to help our patients watch out for in that circumstance. So if I see a new red macule or papule on a previously irradiated breast, I should punch it. Punch it, punch it, punch it. Yes. Um, my musician brain is on very badly I today. I can tell. Having a hard time turning it off. Sorry. <laughs> hey, what's the name of this article and what are the authors? You know, I launched into that rap so fast that I didn't tell any of those details. So this is Atypical Vascular Lesion of the Breast. Um, this authors are Joshua Mandrell and Stacy McClure, and they're from Loyola University Medical Center. And this was Out an article what? that was in the JAD, and it is a case report from the JAD. I don't think it's JAD case reports. It's JAD with a case report. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's do yet another article from the JAD. Good job, editors. You pick some good articles. So this <laughs> one is kind of sad. It's going to be a little hard for me to talk Aww. about, I think, because it's about child abuse. And you love so, kids. It's called Cutaneous Manifestations of Child Abuse and Neglect Part 1. This is one of those CME articles. Authors include Catherine Mantivegna and Nina Livingston out of the University of Connecticut. So... I have never been convinced that I have seen any sign that I thought actually represented child abuse, but it's good for us to be reminded of them. And our role as dermatologists, at least according to these authors, is mostly to triage and get kids to a spot where they can be further investigated and then get the help they need if they actually are being abused. So our role is basically to have a degree of suspicion in the appropriate circumstances and get kids to the emergency room where people are better than we are at figuring out if there's really abuse. And probably the most important thing that I got out of this article is this idea of a sentinel injury. So I feel like I remember like seeing pictures in textbooks of bruises that are in the shapes of slaps or belt buckles or other horrible things that people are doing to their kids. But this sentinel injury thing was a little bit new to me. A sentinel injury can be like, it's the first sign that this kid has been abused in potentially a way that causes only a minor medical injury, but studies show that it puts them at quite high risk for being further abused in the future. And so if we can catch it early, we can possibly save these kids significant harm. And so the most important example of a sentinel injury is any bruising in a pre-mobile infant. So even something really mild that you're like, oh, that's just a bruise. Well, you know, before babies are cruising around, they shouldn't be getting bruises for any reason. Of course, you can imagine benign reasons why it could occur. But basically any baby who's not 
cruising and cruising means like holding onto furniture and walking. That's sort of what a lot of kids do when they're first starting to learn to walk, usually around age like nine or 10 months. Um, you should send them to the emergency room and you should get an ambulance to get them there to make sure they actually get to the emergency room as opposed to telling the parents, oh, this is unusual. You should go to the emergency room because then they might not and might go home and abuse their kids some more. Um, so they say one mnemonic you can use is those who don't cruise rarely bruise. Honestly, it's a little wordy for me. I would say if you don't cruise, you don't bruise. Even though you, I mean, you can hypothetically. You could make cruise. it slow. You could even make it shorter. No cruising, no bruising. Yeah, there you go. Also, you know, even if it's not abuse, it could be like a bleeding disorder or something or leukemia, you know, so they should be evaluated for that as well. And you could tell that to the parents. I don't like using the word leukemia in front of parents, but I, you could say, well, there's medical issues that can make pay babies at increased risk of bruising. So they should really be evaluated. And you should also contact Child Protective Services if you have any suspicion. So I'm not sure I necessarily would have thought of this, you know, especially in anybody who isn't a baby seeing a random bruise in the body or eyes just sort of skip right over it. But little babies before cruising, look out for bruising. But once kids do start to move around, they get bruised up all over the place, especially in parts of their body that knock into things and when they fall down. But they don't usually get bruises on the ears, neck, buttocks, genitalia, and hands. So if you're worried, they report a mnemonic here that I think some previous authors created that goes 10-4 faces P. Okay, you're going to have to explain that to me. (laughs) 10-4 Faces P. So 10 is spelled out, T-E-N, four. So 10, T-E-N, is torso, ear, and neck for a child under four. Apparently those are the most commonly abused areas in children under Mm. four. And then any infant for a kid under four months. They say that's 97% sensitive and 84% specific. And then the faces P are, again, different types of injury that are more characteristic of abuse that should make you pretty suspicious. So faces, P, frenulum tears. So the frenulum, remember, is a little tissue that connects like the mucosal lip to the gingiva or the tongue, bottom of the tongue. Frenulum tears, the auricular area. I mean, I guess people like to pull kids' ears or something. The angle of the jaw, cheek, the eyelid, sclera, and then patterned bruising the pattern bruising is like in the shape of an object or a hand or something like we mentioned before again it's kind of hard to talk about uh, but we do need to know Uh, they also say that petechial bruising has also been shown to be strongly predictive of abuse and the presence of multiple bruises should increase suspicion of abuse particularly if they are bilateral clustered or involving multiple planes of the body So obviously we need to talk to the parents um, and their kids. They, of course, you want to interview the kids separately, though they say if they're under three, they're unreliable. I mean, a lot of kids are just unreliable, but under three, basically it's not worth talking to them alone. But if they're over three, you should also talk to them alone. And again, open-ended and non-judgmental questions because you don't really know if it's abuse or not. So you can say things like, can you tell me what happened here? Or I noticed some marks here. Can you tell me more about them? If you are interviewing the kid alone, you want a chaperone and you also want the parent's permission because remember, even if the kid is sadly being abused, it might not be that parent who's doing it. They might be unaware of what's going on and asking permission can build rapport. 
though they point out that in most states, it's not actually legally required for the parents to give you permission to interview the child alone if you're suspicious of abuse, but still easy enough to ask. Again, the interview can be brief. Our role is to triage. They do say you want to do a full exam, though, including looking in the mouth and palpating for bony tenderness. And finally, they want us to remember that we all have our own unconscious biases. They specifically quote, research supports that medical providers are more likely to identify and report abuse in the case of minority and low income patients. I think that there's sort of the, this, this can't happen here sort of effect. Um, when the, the abuser has demographic characteristics in, in common with the interviewer. So if the physician and the potential target of the investigation share sort of socioeconomic traits that are similar, I think that people tend to see less danger in a person who is like themselves. So I think having your eyes open is very important. I'm glad we're covering this because it's a very important issue. Um, I unfortunately have been a physician that's had to help evaluate a child who was being abused. I'm very grateful that our institution has a strong child abuse um, support and care program. It's actually led by Patty Patterson, who's a pediatrician that specializes in child abuse, and it's called the Center for Superheroes. So. Yeah, um, it's rough, but it's an important job that we serve in society, protecting our kids. All right, we don't normally get so down here on the podcast, but uh, let's let's bring it back up. You know what really gets me going in the morning is new approaches to actinic <laughs> folliculitis. You know what gets me going in the morning, Luke, is talking about dermatologic history. So I love to talk about things that come from our history and also things that are funny in the way that they're named. So we're going to talk about something called actinic folliculitis, and its history starts way back in 1972 when it was first described as a seasonal acneiform eruption called acne estivalis or Mallorca acne. And that kind of is going to give you a little bit of clue as to how people think that this happens. So this was first described by an author named Hjorth et al. It's H-J-O-R-T-H. That's going to make it on the list of interesting names, I think. And in 1972, they did this report of patients. There were 40 Scandinavian patients, hence the J, the silent J, I guess, or the Hjor. Um, in the in the names, 40 Scandinavian patients who were vacationing in the Mediterranean in the springtime. And the patients developed these not these little pustules superficially that the authors described as this acne estivalis. Estivalis is spelled A-E-S-T-I-V-A-L-I-S. They refer to it as AA in the manuscript. I'm going to call it acne estivalis because I think AA overlaps too much with alopecia areata. So this predominantly affected women in that cohort and in the author's cohort. And as in both circumstances, conventional acne treatment was not found to be helpful. An analogous entity that was called actinic superficial folliculitis was described in 1985 by Nyboa. These were cases of photo-induced non-pruritic superficial pustules that res presented in a similar distribution to acne estivalis. And then in 1985, Verboff postulated that acne estivalis and Actinic superficial folliculitis were the same entity because they overlapped significantly and put forward that they should all be categorized as actinic folliculitis. Photo testing can provoke actinic folliculitis. It doesn't always, um, but it's a potential tool to use to evaluate these patients. So to that end, these authors who are very fun names, actually, um, 
I'm trying to find the full spelling of the last name of the, yeah, Santa. So Santa is such a cool name. Santa actually has, um, I think there's a, a word in another language for that, which is cool, but Santa. And then the la- this corresponding author's last name is Butt. And then Dr. Sally Ibotson, I think Ibotson um, as well. And they are from the University of Dundee in Dundee, UK, which is kind of cool. So they have a phototherapy sort of department in their institution, and they wanted to look at patients that presented to this with actinic folliculitis, which is a rare idiopathic photodermatitis that demonstrates photodistributed monomorphic pustules. Actinic folliculitis, as we said, encompasses acne estivalis and superficial actinic folliculitis. The etiology is still not completely elucidated. In this study, they were able to demonstrate the use of photo testing to confirm the diagnosis using UVA provocation as a diagnostic tool. And they were also able to utilize UVB phototherapy, narrowband, as a prophylactic method against the development of actinic folliculitis in a recurrent basis. So in their photobiology service, they were in the Scottish, sorry, Scottish Photobiology Service, I think that's so cute, the SPS, um, they were able to identify a number of patients diagnosed with actinic folliculitis who had positive photo testing. Therapeutic options are relatively limited. Topical tretinoin and isotretinoin have been reported as beneficial. Tetracycline antibiotics don't necessarily always have as much of an effect. Other traditional acne therapies have not been as useful. Prophylactic narrowband UVB was not previously described, and so this adds to the treatment regimen for this particular condition. They looked at the clinical characteristics, photo testing results, and responses to treatment for all patients with actinic folliculitis treated at their center over a 10-year period. They had 10 patients. Median onset of the disease was about 25 years of age, and mean referral time for investigation was seven years. So many of these patients were long-suffering with the condition. Main sites of involvement were the face, with monomorphic pustules appearing to follow sunlight exposure, and the eruption was provoked with iterative doses of broadband UVA irradiation in five patients. Iterative iterative just means repetitive, so itare is from Latin, and it means to do a second time. There is a French like verb, iteratif, which is basically to repeat, Um, but this is iterative, so they're repeating the treatments until basically they get the result. The um, successful treatment of patients with the narrowband UVB is, I think, a nice thing to have in our back pocket if we have a patient that presents with this rare photodermatitis. And I think that discussing the clinical features is also beneficial as well, so that patients can be properly recognized. Now, of course, you have to exclude other potential causes of superficial pustule formation. So you have to exclude bacterial and fungal infection. It's appropriate to do workup for autoimmune disease if that is expected. The entire population that they are presenting here were evaluated in that way. And with the exception of one patient having pterosporum folliculitis, everybody else was uniformly negative for those metrics. And then they were able to show that in five of their patients that consented to have treatment with narrowband UVB, they had two that had full resolution of their symptoms. One patient had a moderate reduction of symptoms and delayed onset, and another with mild improvement. Only one of the patients reported no improvement, but that patient discontinued therapy after only six treatments. They also in the evaluation of their patients, recommend something called limacycline. Now, if you're an American physician, you probably have not heard of limacycline. Limacycline's dose is also funny. It's 408 milligrams. That's an interesting dose. So limacycline is a family is in the same family as tetracycline and minocycline, and it is a tetracycline family antibiotic. It's not available in the United States, but it is available in the UK. 
So it makes I sense think that, that something with lime in the name would be available there, right? Aren't they limeys? They Is this are limeys. They're all taking limacycline. Do you, do you know why they're actually called limeys? I do. Scurvy history. But yes, tell scurvy. us. So actually, when I was a um, second year dermatology resident, I won third place at the ASDP duel in dermatopathology with a case of scurvy I got to present. And we definitely talked about the limeys. So for a while in the British, um, in the British Navy, they were kind of eating the way that British people tend to focus their diets in that time period, not now as much, but there was a lot of like meat and potatoes type of focus, but not so much on the green and leafies. So people were at sea for long periods of time without any ability to access fresh produce and ended up having trouble with vitamin C, which, you know, gave them scurvy. So they figured out that that was the problem and they started kind of allotting limes to the sailors to help prevent scurvy. So the limeys comes from that is my understanding. Yeah, they just like eat straight lime or did they like you know them being sailors their potatoes maybe they were putting it in their rum i don't know it's you know it's an interesting question we'll have to look at the method of consumption for lime amongst limeys in antique british naval practice <laughs> also it's kind of interesting that they picked limes like i'm pretty sure limes aren't native to the uk were they just getting a ton of limes from their overseas colonies and had to figure out something to do with it you know knowing the way that intrigue and in international politics works Probably. I mean, it sounds reasonable. We shall have to have an update on that later. There was uh, some so lime baron who was like, hmm, you know what would be great is if you all used my limes <laughs> and they could prevent scurvy. And of course, he was a cousin of the king because which royal isn't a cousin of some other royal? So they like made a pact and it all worked out. No offense to any royals listening to the podcast. But anyway... Back to the matter at hand. Again, still still the musician. That's a direct quote of Snoop Dogg. So narrowband UVB can be a treatment option for these patients. They don't have to take a systemic medication for it. And you could also potentially use home phototherapy. I wonder if polypodium leukotomus would have any effect on these patients. Because I've had a case report of a patient that had porphyria cutanea tarda that had terrible blisters. Um, fellow was a dialysis patient that was having to drive into town multiple times a week for dialysis because he lived out in the country. And I couldn't convince him to wear gloves, partially because he had a little arthritis and he said that it hurt. But we, we had him use polypodium leukotomus extract and he stopped making blisters on the backs of his hands like he was doing. I really do think that that is a useful treatment. So I wonder if that would also work. But a great thing to be aware of, kind of a unifying term for the acne estivalis and the actinic superficial folliculitis under the umbrella of actinic folliculitis and a new tool in our armamentarium with the narrowband UVB. Yes, this was out of the journal Clinical and Experimental Dermatology, by the way. I always kind of like the articles that teach me about an entity that I didn't know existed and feel like I probably read it in some textbook at some point, but totally forgot about it. And then also tell me what to do about it. So thanks. The photographs they have here, I mean, there's one that shows a young woman with just pustules all over her forehead. I feel like I could have been convinced that that was acne mechanica from something she was wearing on her forehead, for example. So that's the kind of thing to look out for. And then they had a great picture of their photo patch testing where they showed the size of their photo patch and then they showed the patient 24 hours later and they had a studying of pustules right in that square shaped treated area. So I think that they had pretty convincing evidence of induction of the phenomena with the photo testing. That's all we got for you today in terms of articles, but a few things to mention before we sign off. So um, we've got, well, back in episode 87, we talked a little bit about the SALT score. And that stands for severity of alopecia tool. It ranges from zero to 100, and it's basically just the percent of your scalp hair that you don't have anymore. 
We've got a friend of the show whom you have had dinner with at one point. It was actually lunch at the AAD. It was very fun. It was across the uh, convention center at a churrascaria, which was perfect because he happens to be Brazilian. So I had to check in with him on how to pronounce his name properly because I want to pronounce it properly. So it is Carlos Vambier. It's spelled W-A-M-B-I-E-R, but it's pronounced Carlos Vambier, which is a great name. And so he had a tip for us. Yes, so he is kind of a hair expert. And he mentioned that this salt score, you could use it for any reason why you're losing hair. It doesn't just have to be alopecia areata. And he also says that your thumb can be 1% of the scalp. That's the, the rule of thumb. And also wanted to point out that the salt score is not validated for children, at least not sort of in the same way it is for um, adults. A couple other things I wanted to mention. Uh, We've talked about this before. I, every year, run this Practical Dermatology for Primary Care course here at the University of Utah. It's going to happen on Friday, October 7th. It's this all-day event intended for primary care providers, but anybody is welcome to join. Myself and a bunch of faculty from the University of Utah are giving a bunch of great talks. It's like 7.45 a.m. to 5.15 p.m. or something like that. In-person registration has closed, I'm afraid, but if you want to participate virtually, you still can. We'll put a link in the show notes, and you can also just look it up online, Practical Dermatology for Primary Care, University of Utah, and you can find it. Also, I'm leading another CME activity that's just getting off the ground. This is something I actually did a year or two ago. This is a, an educational platform called Gathered, I think is how they want you to pronounce it, G-A-T-H-E-R hyphen E-D. And it's this educational slash social platform, and we're learning about atopic dermatitis. And I led one of these groups, a couple of them, a couple years ago. And you log in when you feel like it. You do some modules when you feel like it. There's a couple live discussions, but mostly it's sort of go at your own pace. It's free for participants. You get to hang out with me a little bit, and you get 2.5 CME hours, I think. So again, we'll put a link in the show notes for that one, or again, you can probably look that one up online as well. There's room for only 15 people in my team though. So if you want to join us, hop in early. And that's all I wanted to say. Michelle, did you have anything else you wanted to mention? Um, not really. I think that this was an excellent kind of sampling of the dermatologic literature. Uh, I think that the course that you're putting on will be a great opportunity for some education. And I'm very glad that people joined us to listen today. Yeah. So let's remember what we learned. We learned that we went to Texas Dermatology Society meeting and we talked about some of the things that we thought were especially cool there. I like the vibrating toothbrush. We also learned about high flow vascular stains. We need to be suspicious that what looks like a port wine stain is not in fact a port wine stain. So for example, changing over time. We you know what's funny about, about these... that article, Luke? When you said funny? high flow. When you said high flow vascular stain, and I was just looking at the title, I was like, is this article about ultrasound or, der or dermatopathology? And it kind of ended up being more about ultrasound, but it was interesting how much there was overlap because the stain kind of sounded like a little histopathological hint. Ah, I gotcha. We talked about these atypical vascular lesions. Be very suspicious of red marks on a previously irradiated breast. You want them to be one of these things and not angiosarcoma. We talked about when to worry about child abuse, and we talked about actinic folliculitis and narrowband UVB could potentially be a treatment if you do end up finding a patient with it. Thanks for joining us today, everybody, and thanks to all members of Team Dermosphere. This time we had help from Morgan Dykeman, Guy Kuseki, Eleonora Marcacci, and Michael Birdsall. 
Among many other things, they do the sound editing. They've been keeping our website up to date and also keeping our social media clipping along. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also find us on that website, dermospherepodcast.com, which has our entire archive as well as links to all of the original articles and is also a good way to reach out to us. We also have another podcast. If you guys have been listening to SkinCast as well, you may have noticed that we haven't created an episode lately, and that's because there's been some turnover at the University of Utah. Um, it was one of those um, excellent people who was helping us out with that ep- or with that podcast. We're planning to restart once um, somebody new is trained to take over her role, but if anybody was sad that it wasn't happening and wondered what was going on, that's the story. It's called SkinCast. Michelle, you usually give a little blurb about it. So SkinCast is a public-facing podcast that's intended to help people take the very best care of the skin they live in. And they're usually short episodes, 15 to 20 minutes on a single topic directed at lay people to help them understand things like atopic dermatitis or cutaneous warts or contact dermatitis. We have special episodes about things like allergic contact dermatitis to Halloween makeup and things about managing anti-aging and hair loss. Episode 90 will be coming at you in two weeks, which means we're 11 episodes away from episode 100. We're trying to figure out if we're going to do something special for episode 100. It seems like we should do something. We're coming up with some ideas, but if any of you guys have some ideas about how we should celebrate our 100th episode, let us know on social media or send us a message through our website. Good hanging out with you guys today. We'll see you in two weeks.